to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Uh, Glenn is in uh, Iowa, and uh, and so so I'm uh, preaching this week again. I was here last week, and then Glenn will be back again next Sunday night, and so uh, it'll be great to have him back. And I'm going to be uh, picking up again the book of Luke um, as we've been going through the book of Luke, or uh, New Life has been going through the book of Luke for the last several months, and um, and so I'm going to pick up starting in. Luke chapter 11, and then Glenn will pick up from where I leave off tonight. Um, and I'd like to just start, if we can, with that, the passage, and, um, and then begin with a word of prayer. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught His disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the word that is alive and true, that dives deep into our hearts and it cuts through the attitudes and the the, the things of our lives, and it penetrates to the core of who we are. We pray that as we study the Scriptures tonight, that they would come alive in us. God, we pray that as we, as we look at who You are and the life of Jesus and, and the prayer that he, he teaches His disciples in the moment to pray, that we also would follow after that, follow after Him. May this be true in us. May it live in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take tonight and talk about the first half of the Lord's Prayer, and, um, but I want to start in the beginning of this particular passage where G- I find something interesting where Jesus is talking about, or it says that or Luke was saying that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and we get the implication that he was praying somewhat by himself, or at least praying, uh, maybe he was with his disciples and they were all praying, but he was off by himself. They weren't kind of in a group kind of thing, but at least near enough for them to hear him. And it says when he finished, so no idea necessarily if the other disciples had finished as well or if they were off kind of cutting up and eating and that kind of thing and Jesus is off praying or how that's really going. But nonetheless, that when Jesus finished, they had been noticing maybe we could insert a couple of things just to kind of insert ourselves into this setting. And, and, he said, and it says, when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. They, they watched Jesus pray. They listened to Jesus pray. Now, these, these disciples were not unfamiliar with prayer. It wasn't like, we've never prayed before, so we need you to teach us how to pray. They were, they were Jewish boys. They had grown up. They had been around prayer. They'd been taught to pray. They 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 had grown up in a place where they were learned in the Scriptures. They had been taught to pray the Psalms. They, had, they knew about what it was like to pray. So it wasn't a, we've never prayed before, so teach us how to pray kind of question. 
I wonder if there wasn't a, something about the prayer of Jesus that was somehow a little different than the way that they prayed. And we don't know. Um, it indicates here in this particular verse that just as John taught his disciples, so somehow John taught his disciples how to pray, and, and in the ways that they knew that they were Jesus' disciples, they said, you are our leader, you are our rabbi, so would you teach us how to pray as well? We don't know what John taught his disciples. There's not anything that would give us an indication of what specifically that was about. And then Jesus responds to him, to them, and says, when you pray... Say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Now you might recognize, especially because we just said the Lord's Prayer, that this is a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer that many of us are probably more familiar with. We might be familiar with the um, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, but then the your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not in this particular passage. It isn't the fact that Luke cut it. It's actually probably more likely that Matthew added it for clarification and development of that idea. Um, Luke and Matthew did not steal from one another. Um, they actually would have looked at, you know, for any of you who are uh, in seminary or, or into some of the more details, but um, they may have looked at Mark and, and at what is known as Q source, which is a, something else. So they may have looked at something similar, but they did not look at one another and, and you know, Matthew steal from Luke and then say, oh, I'm going to add that. Luke, you're kind of like a slacker, and so I'm going to add a few phrases or something like that. Matthew, in his context and who he was communicating to, felt the need or the desire to be able to expand and develop what it meant, and so added in a couple of those phrases, which we also then, uh, most of us, if we've learned the Lord's Prayer or pray the Lord's Prayer, or praying Matthew's version. And, uh, and so Jesus not only was communicating to his disciples, this is what you should pray, but, but obviously he was modeling it enough for them to say, teach us to pray because we want to pray like you. Now, before we move on to the kind of phraseology or the phrases in the Lord's Prayer, I think it's interesting for us and any of you that are parents, to think about your kids. I, I have four boys, Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith, my little mini law firm. And, um, and I, I, as I was reading this passage, I thought, I wonder if my kids notice my wife and I praying and if they would ever ask or think, teach us to pray. If I were to think about who are my disciples, instead of thinking on a broader level, I'm a pastor and I'm a pastor of college and 20-somethings here, so those are my disciples. What if I got it, brought it down to a very narrow description of my life and said, well, certainly my most intimate and mo- most definite disciples are my four boys. And so to think about them that, that maybe one of my primary tasks in life is, yes, to train them and help them to make wise choices, but what if it's also to pray? What if we as parents were to recognize that maybe one of the primary tasks of our lives would be to teach our kids to pray? Not just to not, you know, not make bad decisions and put go to the wrong places or hang out with the wrong people, but to pray that we engage the Lord. I talked about Job last week and how how he never let God out of the process of his anguish and questions and suffering, 
What if we were to teach our kids that no matter what you're going through in life, whether you find good friends or bad friends, whether you find yourself in a good situation or a bad situation, that we teach them to pray? And so it certainly seems like a great admonition to us as parents or some of you as future parents to put onto your list or put into your um, desire for your children is that they would learn how to pray. And not just to pray rote prayers or prayers out of memorization, but something bigger, that, that something does come alive in our hearts. And so when we study the Lord's Prayer, we're not just talking about, okay, just memorize this prayer. I don't think Jesus was saying, just memorize this prayer. But one of the reasons that we even pray the Lord's Prayer corporately, as well as then study it and kind of break it down a little bit, is that in praying the Lord's Prayer corporately, it reminds us of some bigger ideas. But there's something that I think is really important for us to think about when we think about the Lord's Prayer, is that I think that if we look at the phrases in the Lord's Prayer, each aspect is not something that everyone would pray. You know, we hear, you know, if you look on, if you watch the news and something tragic happens, oftentimes you'll hear a news anchor on any station, and even if you know their religious beliefs, and those religious beliefs may be Christian or they may not, what, what, what might you hear on the radio or TV? Our thoughts and our prayers are with you. That's a pretty common statement. Now, whether or not they pray, I have no idea, but it could be certainly just a, a way of saying that we're with you or that we support you or that we're thinking of you, and it just sounds a little more spiritual. I'm not sure. But, but the idea is that I think that there are people who aren't Christians that pray. What are they asking for? Protect my kids? Help me land a better job? Help me, um, put my, you know, help me not do this? Help me help my kids? Help my wife? Help my job? Help, you know, we have this, this kind of list of things that we want. And I wonder here if there isn't a need for that Jesus is kind of redirecting our prayers and putting them and pointing them in a way that isn't just so that we're switching the source for our prayers. That we're just saying, oh, I'll take my prayers that, or take the prayers that any person would pray, whether they believe in Jesus or not. And so now I become a Christian and all I do is take my previous desires, the previous prayers that I was praying, the previous dreams that I had, and now I just switch them and point them towards a different source. But instead, I think Jesus is saying, I don't want to just be a new source for your ideas and your dreams for your own life. But instead, I want to, I want to mess with what it is that you're praying for. I want to mess with a little bit the, the, the things that are in your heart that you think you need. And let me rearrange some priorities for your life. Because if we think about this, and I just want to go through these really quickly before we start to dissect a little bit of this, but even the first word, Father. People in our society even today will, would say, God, higher power, pray to God. Well, what is God? God can be a very generic term for some sort of higher power. But when we say Father... I don't know that I know of any non-believer that would say Father when they're praying if they, did, if they were just kind of throwing, shooting up a prayer, so to speak. But as children of God, we would say Father, which totally changes who we are praying to. It's not generic Father anymore. And if we go down the list, 
hallowed be your name. I am not sure that our culture and our society isn't more about, you know, hallowed be, honored be my name. Your kingdom come, if we use the Matthew version, your kingdom come, your will be done. I think it's my will be done, my kingdom come, what I want, make that happen. And then it goes on into, into um, in the following things, and these, this is, these are going to be things that Glenn's going to talk about next, next week, but give us each day our daily bread. And you might think, well, that seems like a pretty normal prayer that anybody would pray. I think maybe, but I also think really the, probably the non-believer prayer says something along the lines of, give me today's bread and tomorrow's bread and the next day's bread and the next day's after that and next week's bread and next month's bread and next year's bread, and I'll take it all right now, please. Because then I'll feel secure because if I only have today's bread, then I'm not so sure about tomorrow's bread. And if I only have today's bread, then I have to think about and lean on you for tomorrow's bread. So I wonder if, if even just the fact that it's each day, that it's a daily leaning on, a daily knowing that we need provision from the Lord. And then as he goes in to forgive our sins, I think our world's way would be more about revenge and and, and not us forgiving, but instead us getting vindication. And lead us not into, into temptation. I wonder sometimes if our prayers, uh, non-believer prayer, would be more along the lines of, help me not to experience the consequences. Help me to get away with it. Help this not to be a big decision that's going to mess anything up. But instead, we're praying not even to be led into temptation. And so... And so I, th- I think Jesus is doing something really beautiful here by, by not just providing a new source for our desires, but instead messing with the desires that we have and the priorities that we have set for our own lives. And he starts off by saying, Father. And this idea of Father communicates something about the relationship that we have with God. That it's not just God, higher power, out there, kind of ambiguous, vague, um, um, nebulous, kind of, I don't know, he has no shape, he has no form, he, I don't know how to get in touch with him, I don't know, it's just kind of out there-ishness. And so it's, it's not God, it's not higher power, it's Father. Which communicates then that we are sons and we are daughters. We are part of a family. My boys, what do they call me? I would hope that your kids would call you mom and dad. Now, I am more things than that. I am judge, but they don't call me that. (laughs) Hello, judge. Creator, I am that. Created them, at least partially involved in that. And I am disciplinarian. I am guide. There's a lot of roles that I play, and there's a lot of roles that God has, and yet what does He ask for us to call Him Father? There's this, there's this relational dynamic, this, this interaction, and I think that it not only states a, a state, makes a statement about the fact that He's Father, we're sons and daughters, therefore we're in a family. I also think that it, it communicates something about our, the way in which we would relate. If we're, if we're on this this relational basis, this, ways, this way in which we communicate with a father. I mean, the way we communicate with a father versus the way we communicate with a judge is very different. But my boys run to me when I come into the house. 
And they climb all over me and they're, hey, dad, hey, dad. And, you know, I'm talking to mom and their mom and and it's and it's a dad, 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 dad. You know, I mean, and my boys are small enough that they haven't learned how to interrupt well and and wait and be patient. Dad, dad, dad. Hang on just a second. Dad, dad, dad. You know, I mean, there's no waiting. You know, I don't they haven't got a huge grasp of time. So so if they have to wait for more than three seconds, it feels like an eternity. And so, you know, but they're, they're there. They jump in and they want to communicate and they want to tell. And they want, they want Dad to know what's going on. And I want to know what's going on with them. There's this interaction, this engaging, this Dad is in the process of their lives. They're with Dad. Dad's with them. And there's this desire, I believe, from God that says, I want that. I want this interaction. I want this engaging. I want this family, son, father, father, daughter relationship. I want that. Now, for some of you, that might be like, I don't, you, these father talks that you might receive, you might hear at a, at a service when you come to church might be the hardest thing for you to hear because the dad you had was in no way the real right kind of dad. He didn't model for you what a real dad, what God the father would be. One of the reasons that I think I as I think of, of raising my boys, I think of the fact that I am teaching them what God the Father is like. I'm modeling to them what God the Father is like as best as I can, as best as I know how, knowing that how they see me will determine and help them to know how they see God. And if I am only judge to them, then they might only see God as judge. And so to to know that I love and long to be merciful to them as we talked about and prayed in the, in the confessional prayers, that, that if I can communicate that to them, that they would know that, that God also wants to be gracious and merciful to them. And so for some of you, you might think, well, my dad didn't do that, but God is not just a, a reflection of, He is a perfect Father. And for some of you, it might mean that you eliminate and push aside some of those ideas of what dad is about and just even start with reading some of the scriptures and 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 saying okay i'm just going to come say father and try and put some of those things aside because god is not just a reflection of our earthly dads even if it's a great reflection that he's even better he is the perfect father Jesus is probably not only referencing this idea of familial and relational and those types of, he's kind of just drawing in some of those images, which he does, and he then reinforces in the following verses um, in Luke chapter 11 up to 13. So that's where we have the passage that says, if a son or some of your son or daughter asks for a, a, a piece of bread, he's not going to give him a snake, you know, he's not going to give him a stone. How much he's going to why he wants to give us good gifts, and so he's, he is reiterating the goodness of God, the the desire of a father to be kind to his children, but he's also in many ways evoking the God of the Exodus. If we look at Exodus chapter four, um, verse twenty-two and through twenty-three, it says then say to Pharaoh, now this is God speaking to Moses to say to Pharaoh, they the Israelites they're in the they're in slavery they're wanting to get out they are you know the israel the egyptians are pushing in on them the egyptians are causing them you know make more bricks less straw all that kind of thing they've been in slavery for a long long time and moses now is kind of on the scene and he's 
interacting with Pharaoh and the plagues are coming and all this. And it says, and he says, say this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. And then he goes on and he says, but you refuse. So this would have been after the ninth plague. There was 10 plagues, but you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. And so there's this reference here that Israel is God's son. Again, we now are the Israel of today. We are now the family of God. This was the family of God in the Old Testament was the Israelites. They were in slavery. But what did it mean then for the Hebrew people to get this idea of a God who calls them sons? He says, I, he's essentially evoking in this idea in the Lord's Prayer by saying, Father, by saying, he, I'm, I'm calling on the one who looks at us as family and is our rescuer. He is the one that pulls us out of slavery, recognizing that we are in need of rescuing. Well, how true of that, how true is that of us even today? And how true was that then that we are in need of rescuing and that he is reminding them to keep with the language of a coming kingdom and a coming God and a rescuing God and, a, and, and the language of liberation and freedom. And so for Israel to call God Father was to hold on to the hope of liberty and freedom. And so for us, as we go to God and we say, Father, is not just I'm your son and you're my dad, but is also I call on you as the father, the rescuer of your sons and daughters. That there is hope and there is liberty. And I think that that is true. We're going to talk about your kingdom coming here in just a little bit. I think that's true of not only in the immediate circumstance, but also the longing for the coming kingdom, the ultimate rescue. And they knew that they should be rescued. And that's why throughout the New Testament, we can look back and the, and the rescuing of the people of God coming out of the Exodus is such a strong emphasis and a reminder. And we can look back and know that that was a foreshadowing of what was to come. And so he's saying, I want you to call me father. I want you to pray to the father because he's your dad. We're, we're a son or we're a daughter. We're in relationship. I want us to be relational, not just connecting to some nebulous power out there. But I also want to recognize and help you to recognize that this is evoking the God of the Exodus, the rescuer of his people, bringing them into hope and life out of slavery and into the promised land. And then he goes on and he says, hallowed be our name. The word hallowed or hallowed is, the definition is holy, set apart, bigger than, not just even bigger than, that God somehow on this scale of one to ten, if we're a three, he's a nine or a ten. Actually, we're not even on the same scale. He's not just bigger than, he is other than. And I'm not so sure that this was a difficulty for these guys at this point. They were used to the word Yahweh. And not necessarily that they would state that word, because Yahweh as the word or the name of God was so sacred that, and you, you, some of you have maybe seen this, where Y-H-W-H, uh, they left out the vowels, shortened it, kind of abbreviated it. Oftentimes, if it was written within the Scriptures, they would use a different pen or pencil or whatever it is that they were specifically using. They wouldn't use the same type of writing utensil to write Yahweh. Instead, they would, they would only use one particular pen for that particular word. They didn't want it to be somehow um, 
to be thought of as the same type of word as any other word in the language that they would use. And even sometimes they would skip it. And so if there would be a space, they just knew that the space was space for that particular word because it was so holy. So to mention that name was, was even kind of off limits. I mean, it's this, so I don't know that hallowed be your name was something in those days that was a, a difficult concept to grasp. But as I think about it, I wonder if that's a difficult concept to grasp for us. I think, as I think about these two statements, these two phrases, Father and hallowed be your name, that sometimes we fall on two different sides of the spectrum. As some people, it's kind of like, they're, yeah, yeah, you know, me and Jesus, we're like friends. Me and God, we're like, and I, you know, I work with college students, and so this is kind of some, the, the way that I, I hear people getting brought up and, and, and you know, this, this, this desire for this intimacy. And so, you know, me and Jesus, me and God, we're BFFs and, you know, that kind of, language and you know jesus is my homeboy and and i just think i'm not sure that one that really kind of fits in here with it would be kind of like as much as i want my kids to call me dad and i don't want them to call me judge i want them to call me daddy and not creator i also i also don't want them to call me aaron <laughs> you know and it is kind of, they think it's really funny if they ever do you know um and, and, and so, like, you know, if they can't get my attention or something, hey, Aaron, and, you know, that's so weird for me to hear that. But, and it's, you know, it's a little bit of joke around our house, and that's fine. But if there was ever a time, if, let's say, there was a serious conversation happening, and they were to say to me, well, Aaron, uh, that would not be good for them. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes if we have lost our reverence of a holy God. If in our culture of wanting to be so uh, maybe laid back or so chill or so um, relational or so authentic or not want to have any sort of pretenses or any boundaries and those types of things, if we've lost some sort of reverence for the holy, holy God. Anytime that I ever think, I'm not sure that I can wrap my head around that idea and think about, I mean, I'm not used to the we, we write Jesus, we write God, we sing songs about Yahweh. I mean, there, we don't have something quite like that that causes us to stand in awe or to say, oh, to a word that would represent who God is. One of the things that I like to do that somehow just makes me think, okay, God is not only bigger, because this is big. And so I, I like, I'm a big uh, uh, um, astronomy type guy. This picture is actually didn't, didn't turn, doesn't turn out quite as well on the screen, but you can go online and, and just look up some star things and all that kind of stuff. But this thing is a star cluster. And um, in this picture, there's probably a few thousand stars, um, which is pretty amazing. Um, except for the fact that if you think about in one particular galaxy, like our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are 250 billion stars. 250 billion stars. And this star cluster, there might be stars being born. Um, the amount of power and, and uh, the amount of energy that's in this star cluster, a couple thousand stars, and there's 250 billion stars in our one galaxy. Um, but the amazing thing is about galaxies is that... Um, let's see, I need to find my data here. Um, there's, a, there's estimated haven't quite finished counting yet, there's an estimation that there are 100 billion galaxies. So in one galaxy alone, the Milky Way galaxy, 250 billion stars. Let's talk about one star. Let's talk about the sun. 
our sun, the power of the sun, is, would be compared to about a million atomic bombs going off every second. So every second on the sun, million atomic bombs, million atomic bombs, million atomic bombs. No big deal, right? But our sun, there are stars that are over 600,000 times brighter than our sun. 600,000 times brighter than our sun. And our sun, the energy in our sun is a million atomic bombs a second. So 250 billion stars in our galaxy. One of those stars, which is kind of a medium-sized star, is our sun. That sun, a million atomic bombs a second. And there are stars that are 600,000 times bigger than our sun. And there's 100 billion galaxies. Okay, now I'm feeling really small. And in feeling really small, I realize that God is the one who made those stars. It actually says in Psalm chapter 147, verse 4, he says, He determines the number of the stars, and He calls them each by name. He's got names for 250 billion, let's just say, I don't think this is true, but there's 250 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 250 billion times 100 billion galaxies. That's a lot of names. God calls them by name. It says in another passage in Psalms that God breathed stars into existence. God, star breather. And in that, a star cluster. Star cluster. So how, maybe, maybe this would help you just a little bit. It's father, star breather. Father, creator of 250 billion stars in this galaxy with one medium-sized star with a million atomic bombs going off every second. And there is stars that are 600,000 times bigger at, than our star-sun thing. Okay. You're huge. You are holy. You're not just bigger, because those are way bigger numbers that I can barely wrap my head around. You're not just bigger than me, like by a million and times a million, times a billion, times a trillion. You are other than. And yet, my dad made those. And yet, my dad made that star cluster. And yet, my dad made the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy. And I don't have time to go into nebulas, which are totally my favorite. My, my dad made those. My dad made those. My dad makes nebulas in his, in his spare time. Actually, he just breathes them. <laughs> That's my dad. So what if there's this tension that we live in where we, where we call him Father, but we also recognize that he is absolutely holy? That there is this beautiful re- blend of reverence and intimacy. It's not this homeboy, yeah, we're, we're cool, but there's this understanding that he is dad and, and I, I can relate and have a relationship, but at the same time, he's so amazing. He's beyond. And if we can live in that tension, I wonder if in the, in the walk of our lives and in the dailiness of our lives that it doesn't create this, this holy awe that just gives us almost a sense of gratefulness that we 
have the privilege of calling Him Dad. We have the privilege of calling Him Father. And then He goes on, Jesus, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. I love how it says it in the message. It says, Father, reveal You who You are. Set the world right. See, when He's talking about the kingdom, Your kingdom come, He's making a reference to the past and communicating and reaching back to this idea that God created the world and He created it in a certain way and He designed it perfectly and then evil broke into the world and sin entered the hearts of humanity. And so He's reaching back to this fact that it was once perfect and it is now broken. And then He also brings into the acknowledges the present and for us it means because of the cross and the resurrection that the kingdom is here that jesus through the cross brought about and did something about the brokenness of the world that and if you've been around here on sunday night i hope that you know that this general big narrative cosmic god story is that when the evil and the sin that entered into the world he, God did something about it. He didn't just wander around through the Old Testament wondering, wow, how in the world am I going to fix this? They've really done a big mess on this. Instead, Genesis 11, actually, Genesis chapter 3, I think, is the first reference to the fact that God was already thinking about, already had something in, in mind. Because in Genesis 3, when he's talking to the serpent, it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Who is that a reference to? It's a reference to Jesus. And the fact that Jesus will crush the head of the enemy and that he will once again rule and reign over his perfect creation. But in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he makes a covenant with Abraham and makes a people. And that's where he establishes sonship and daughtership, family relationship with God. He becomes father and he says, through you, through your people, through this people, you're my people, through my people, I am going to save this world. I am going to make things right. And we cruise all the way through the Old Testament at the end and the culmination in the beginning of the New Testament, we see then Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes through that family. He dies on the cross to make things right. And so maybe you've heard the phrase before, already but not yet. The kingdom of God has already come, but it has not yet been seen in its fulfillment and its fullness. And so when he, so he's acknowledging the fact that the kingdom has come because of what Jesus at this point was about to do, but for us has done on the cross. But he also is making a reference to the future. When he says your kingdom come, he's not just saying, okay, let's make everything right right now. Because we live in a world with a lot of brokenness. Very, very exemplified in, the, in what happened in Norway this last several days. We live in a very, very broken world. And so when we're praying, we're acknowledging the brokenness of the world. We're acknowledging that Jesus has come. But we're also saying, please, your kingdom come. Yes, break in now. Yes, protect. Yes, keep people alive. Yes, heal people. Yes, do some things. But those things are really only signposts to what is ultimately going to come. And that is that when Jesus returns, he will come and make all things right. He'll make them completely right right again. His resurrected body is, a, is an indication of the bodies that we will have, bodies that will not wither away and be full of disease and die ever again. 
And so we know that when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not only praying about what, how the kingdom might break in, but it's also a, a, a prayer of longing that's longing for, in some ways, saying, Jesus, come back. I don't know about you, but during this last several days of what's been happening in Norway and the things that they're discovering and, and the tragedy that has, has shaken that nation, my prayer has been, yes, God, pr- protect those people, comfort those people, help them in, the, in all that they're doing. We pray that there wouldn't be more death and more destruction and they would find more things. But also, it's Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We long for your return when this world will be made completely right and be brought back to a place that you originally designed. We pray for your kingdom to come, not just now, but in ultimate, in ultimate manifestation. We're praying for the radical and complete defeat and uprooting of evil. What happened in Norway a couple of days ago was evil personified. And it's okay to identify that. It's okay to be mad at it. It's okay to get angry at it because in some ways by doing that, what we're doing is we're identifying with a God who says, yes, I'm not okay with this and I'm going to do something about it. And I don't know about you, but as I look at the Lord's Prayer, there's not only these ideas that we've communicated, but, but even the order in which Jesus communicates them pushes on me and how I might pray. Because so often we jump so quickly to what we need, but we haven't gotten there yet. Next is give us today our, each day our daily bread. But, but I wonder sometimes if we really don't get so focused on ourselves that it's really, dear Lord Jesus or Father, thank you for what a great day. You've created it. Now, will you bless me? Think about some of the Prayers that we might pray. God, I pray that you'd bless me when I do this. God, I pray that you'd bless us on a road trip. I pray that you'd protect us as we go here. I pray that you would, that you would be with me. And yet, in, in so much of what we've just talked about, it is already true that he has blessed us. The fact that he is our Father is an unbelievable blessing. The fact that he is holy and yet he cares about us is an unbelievable blessing. The fact that his kingdom has come and is yet to come is an unbelievable blessing. And so I wonder if, if Jesus isn't insinuating in some way, don't just pray, bless me. Instead, say, bless God first. God, I don't just pray that you'd bless me. Actually, help me to bless you, to be a part of what you are doing. This is not ultimately about me. This is about you and your story. My story fits into your story. So we're going to start with the story of God first. And so help us to prioritize our prayers in our lives. That our lives would line up with a bigger story that we would say, wow, your kingdom has come. And I now can be a partaker in and a carrier of that kingdom. I can help by bringing about the kingdom. And so we participate in it. We enter into it in a different way by recognizing that it is about God's kingdom first. His will be done first. And in connecting to His will and in connecting to His kingdom and in connecting to His way, it does something to our own. And so I pray that our prayer would not be so quickly, bless me, but God, I pray that I would bless you. Let's stand up. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you. We thank you for your life. And just as your disciples looked at your life and said, teach us to pray. I pray that not only in prayer, but in life, we would look at your life and say, how can I be like Jesus? How do I handle this situation like Jesus? May we not be so quickly just to run off and think, what do I think is the best way to do this? But to look at your life and say, teach me how to handle my family. Teach me how to pray. Teach me and ask you to be our teacher. Teach us. May we come to you as students, come to you as learners, come to you as those who need your guidance and your direction. And I do pray that you would teach us to pray that we would see you as a loving and perfect Father, that we would see you as a holy and other than God, and that we would be about your kingdom, your kingdom coming. Help us to get a revelation and an understanding of that as well as to recognize how we're a part of it. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.